All right, well, let's get ready to jump into God's Word together today. If you have your Bible and pen, paper, whatever you need to do to get ready, let's get ready. We're going to jump right into week two of a series that we're calling Adulting is Hard. Can somebody just say amen to that reality? Amen. I know, I know you don't have to be in church to know that's true. You just have to just live a little bit. You know, I was thinking this week about how just stepping over that threshold into adulthood uh, just brings so many challenges with it. You know, when you're a kid, you have these routines, and it's been pretty much the same routine from the time you were five years old. You know, you get up, you go to class, you listen to the teacher, you take the test, you pass the test, hopefully you go to the next level, and then you do it all over again, right? Right? And that's the pattern all the way up through into adulthood. And if you go off to college, it's similar. You have new freedoms, but you still, every, every challenge is met with its reward. And then one day you wake up and, and you just wonder, am I passing or failing? Like nobody's giving me a report card on this thing called adulthood. It sure would be nice if somebody would give me a certificate of recognition every once in a while. I mean, I did get all the laundry done this week, right? Like, I, I did pay the bills on time. It, no, there's no reward anymore. And so sometimes it feels like we just aren't really sure how we're doing. I, I read some memes on the internet, and maybe you've seen some of these about how difficult adulting could be. And maybe you could relate to uh, some of these. I, I love this one. It says, I'm an adult, but more like an adult cat. Like, someone should probably take care of me, but I can also sort of make it on my own. <laughs> Maybe you felt that way as an adult. You're like, I'm pretty sure I'm good for a while, but you might want to check on me. I'm not, I'm not really sure. You know, maturity is a process. It's a process. We, we, we're growing. Like, I love this meme here. It said, I'm mature, but not like mature, mature. Like, I pay my own bills, but I still say righty-tighty, lefty-loosey to figure stuff out. <laughs> Anybody still use that? Yeah. I, I like this one. Look at this one. It said, as, as kids, we wondered why our parents were always in a bad mood. Now we're like, okay, yes, that makes sense. Like, <laughs> Funny how your perspective changes, right? I mean, when you're, when you're an adult, there's this expectation that you've kind of figured it out by now, you know? Like, all, all your I's are dotted, all your T's are crossed, all your ducks are in a row. That's why I love this, this last meme. It said, I do not have ducks. I do not have a row. I have squirrels, and they are at a rave. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever felt that way about adulthood, but I think we could all agree. Adulting can be hard sometimes. And, and let me just say today, one of the things that's so difficult about adulting is relationships. Nobody groaned too painfully when I said that, so we'll move on. But I think we could all agree that relationships are difficult. You know, I was thinking about my own kids. When they were uh, even younger than they are now, we used to take them to the playground. And, and when they'd get to the playground, there was something really amazing that would happen. There would be other kids there playing, and I mean, immediately, they would just gravitate to each other, and they'd begin to play together. You've seen this before, right? I mean, sometimes they don't even exchange names. You know, I remember one time in particular leaving the park, and one of my daughters saying, I made a new friend. And I said, because they played together for 25 minutes, what's her name? I don't know. Like, they didn't even bother asking. They just go up, and they meet him, and they tag, you're it, game on. 
And why? Why do they do that? I think the reason is because kids know intuitively life is better together. I mean, we're going to have more fun if we do this together. I'm here. You're here. Let's have a relationship. Let's do this together. But maybe the bigger question is not not why they do that, but how do they do that? Because I think the older we get, we forget. The older we, we get, we It's not that it's hard to go up and introduce yourself to somebody. It's what's hard is getting past the hundred different scenarios that play out in your mind about how awkward this is going to be or how bad this could go. Or you remember other relationships, you know, that that didn't go well and other friendships that that went sideways. And, And what happens is you end up taking your ball and staying on your side of the playground, right? I mean, I I don't remember exactly what age it was, but I've watched with fascination as my daughters have gotten a little older and and they've changed. I mean, we go down to the park here by the river still pretty frequently and and, and I've noticed that sometimes they don't don't go to the other side of the playground. They don't engage the other kids. They're just content to kind of just stay where they are and, and avoid the awkwardness of meeting new people. And, and we all understand that, you know, relationships are more complicated in middle school than they were in elementary school. And they're certainly more complicated in high school and in college than they were in middle school. And how many of you know adulting <laughs> is hard? Those relationships can be complicated. Some people, it's not the awkwardness or the, the introvertedness that keeps them from building relationships. It's a different attitude. It's a mentality that says, like, I, I don't need that anymore. Like, I've, I've kind of reached this place of independence. I've reached this place uh, of just kind of in my life where I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman, and, and I know who I am, and I don't, I don't really need all of that, you know, social life. I don't, I don't need that anymore. And so people intentionally push themselves away from significant relationships. But can I just say to you today that relationships, community, if I can use that word, community is so important. You never outgrow your need for community. You never, you never outgrow it. You never get to the place where it's not necessary. In fact, let me say it like this today. Relationships matter. They matter. And here's how much they matter. Your relationship with other people is a direct reflection and an indication of your relationship with God. Now, before we leave today, I'm going to show you in the scriptures how and why that is, but I just want you to wrap your mind around this. Your relationship with God is reflected and is indicated by your relationship with other people. Relationships matter. It's not good to be alone. Now, maybe for a little while, some of you are like, I could just use some peace and quiet right now. Maybe for about an hour or two, you know, that can be great, but it's not good to be alone. You say, how do you know that? I know that because that's what God said. In fact, I want to go to Genesis chapter one, the very beginning of the Bible. And this is the story of creation. And six different times in this opening narrative, God says something. And what he says is, it's good. He said, it's good. He created the light and it was good. He created the land and the water, and it was good. He created the plants and the trees, and and it was good. And then at the very end of chapter one, look at this with me. Genesis chapter one, verse 31, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. He got everything in place. He said, this is 
very good. But then in chapter two, God says something's not good. He said it's not good. Now, now sin hasn't happened yet. There, there, there's been no deceit. There's been no lies. There's been no manipulation. There's no evil. And yet God says there's something that is not good. What was wrong? Adam was alone. And God looked at it and he said, this is not good. Look at it in chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, even if, you, if you've never been to church before, you've probably heard that scripture if you've been to weddings. Because we often hear that verse read at weddings, that God said it's not good for the man to be alone, and so he made a suitable helper. And it makes sense that we would read that then, because the next part of the story is that, that God gave Adam Eve, and he gave them a command to be fruitful and to multiply. And how many of you know that command should only be followed in the context of marriage? Trek with me on it. Yeah, that's not my sermon. I just want to pause to give you a moment to, to grab a hold of that truth. But let me just say this, because a lot of times we, we read a verse like that and we go, oh, well, God's talking about marriage. Can I just say God is talking about a lot more than marriage in this moment? When God said it is not good, he did not say it is not good for man to be single. He never said singleness is not good. He said, being alone is not good. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but, but Jesus was perfect, perfect in every way, and he was single, even in his 30s, right? Some of you thought it was good in my 20s, now it's not good. <laughs> he was single. There was nothing wrong with singleness. God never said that was wrong. Even the apostle Paul was single. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he actually said this was a blessing. And, and, and it is. You know, for every single person out there that wishes they were married, there's probably two married people that, that you know, wish they were single. And that didn't come out right. That, that could get me in trouble later. I'm just saying those people are out there. The Bible says a lot about the blessing of marriage as I digress. But it, Paul said singleness was a blessing for him. You know why? Because he, he, could be, he could be focused on his purpose and calling and what God had for him to do. And he, I mean, he said pretty plainly, like, marriage people have trouble. <laughs> That's what he said. Like, married women have to deal with the troubles of worrying about their husband, and married men have to worry about the troubles of, of their wife. And he said, hey, being single is great. I highly recommend it. Read that on your own time, 1 Corinthians 7. Singleness is not the problem. Aloneness is the problem. In fact, let me, let me just give a word to the singles here. I, I read this this week, and I thought, you know what? I need to share this. It's Psalms chapter 16, verse 11. Here's what the psalmist said, and he's talking to God. He's praying to God. He says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right Hand. So let me just encourage the singles in saying this, whether, whether you're single or, or single again, maybe you're widowed or maybe you're divorced or whatever, hear me. The Bible does not say there are pleasures forevermore at the right hand of your spouse and there is fullness of joy in the presence of your spouse. Now we thank God for that, but, but what he said is in, in your presence, 
there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So can I just say to you today, I want to remind you today that the key to finding fulfillment, to finding joy, to finding pleasure in your heart is rooted in the presence of God, not in the presence of a mate. A lot of people that have bought into the lie of the enemy that they're not They can't be fulfilled. They can't be complete. They can't be whole until they find the one. And let me just say, we put way too much pressure on other people to be the one. Married couples, we'll we'll come back in the conversation here and talk about us a little bit because we get this wrong too. We get this wrong too when we put all the pressure on our spouse to be everything to us. One person was never intended to, to meet all of your needs. They just weren't. I mean, we want the, the Jerry Maguire moment. Like, we, you complete me. <laughs> like, that, you know, we want somebody to complete us. And, and the world would say it like this, you know, that, that you, you know, it's, we're 50-50 in this thing. You know, 50-50. And then, it, we're, no, no. Who wants to marry somebody that's only 50% committed? We're not 50-50. I am whole, not because of my relationship with my wife. I'm whole because of my relationship with my God. I'm rooted and established in him. In his presence is pleasures forevermore at his right hand. There is fullness of joy. And so I have this understanding that I'm not going to put a yoke upon my spouse that, that they can't carry to be everything. I, like, for example, my wife. Now, we, we just celebrated this year our 20th anniversary. That's awesome. I, I'm, I'm so excited that, that we have celebrated 20 years of marriage and we're still in our early 30s. I mean, that's a miracle. <laughs> it's a lie, too. But <laughs> 20 years of marriage. And I, I don't know. I don't know what I'd do without my wife. I mean, I really don't. I mean, she, she, she makes our house work. I don't know what I'd do without her. But I also know there's a lot of things that I can't do with her. Like, for example, some of you are like, you are in trouble, man. No, let's just stay with me. Help me, fellas. What I mean by that is, last week I told a story about me and my friend Matt going rock climbing together. And I, I need Matt in my life. I mean, we go out, we have adventures together. You know, we climb mountains, the highest peaks on the East Coast in the coldest month of the year. Uh, we like to go kayaking together when the water's 40 degrees. And just stuff that some people would call stupid, but we call life. Like, you know, you just got to feel your blood pumping a little bit. And my wife, she knows I, I, I'm, I'm a thrill seeker. I like adventure. I like to do stuff that's just a little bit outside of her comfort level. She knows that, but I also know that she has no desire to do those things with me. And so I, I, don't, I don't guilt her. That I, can't, I can't believe you don't want to go hike this mountain in 20-degree weather. So we understand. Like, you know what? There, there's, there's aspects of our relationship that, that we don't get from one another, but we appreciate those things. And so here's how she appreciates my adventure streak. I just celebrated my 40th birthday this last week. Now that is my true age, yeah. And so she knows this has been something on my bucket list, so she bought, uh, she bought me tickets to go skydiving. So next Friday, be praying for your pastor. <laughs> To go skydiving. But some, see, we, I posted it on Facebook, like, hey, I'm going skydiving. It's going to be awesome. And somebody's like, wow, so there's two of you going. Does that mean Day's going? 
And I, I said, absolutely not. Like, if you know my wife, you know she is not jumping out of that plane. But she knows me. She knows what I like, and she wanted me to have this experience. So, so she called my brother and asked him if he would go. <laughs> so my brother and I are going to jump out of a, an airplane at 14,000 feet on Friday. So it, I don't know. If that doesn't define a midlife crisis, I don't know what does. But we're going to do it. We're going to have fun doing it. And the reality is, in, in a relationship, you have to know that one person was never intended to, to fulfill every need in your life. We complement one another. But we don't fulfill every need in our life. You know, the, 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 the standard, uh, the narrative of our culture, you know, talks about the one, you know, whether it's Prince Charming or, or, or whoever, it's, it's that one that's, they, they complete me. They're, they're the one for me. And, and we, we can, if you're a single person, you can kind of just disqualify a lot of a really capable, qualified people that God could really unite your heart with because you're, you're waiting. Like you got all these boxes you got to check and they're not the one. Not, can I just tell you something about the one? They don't exist. They, they, they don't exist yet. Okay, yet. You don't marry someone because they're the one. They become the one because you married them. So there's no perfect guy. There's no perfect girl. They're not the one. You find somebody that loves Jesus and that's committed to Jesus and loves him with all of her heart, and then you spend the rest of your life trying to become the one. That's my goal. I want to be the one for my wife. Listen to what the Bible says about the way we love one another. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it tells us we love because he first loved us. In other words, we're capable of becoming the one because the one first loved us. Because, because he was the perfect one. He was everything that I needed. And I have found joy in his presence and pleasures at his right hand. And I'm content in who I am and who he's created me to be. I can now be the one. I can be the one for my spouse. If, if you're here today and, and you feel like you're alone, now I'm not talking about single, that was just dating advice. If you feel alone, I want to tell you today, the Bible says that's not good. And not good means bad. It's not right that you be alone. I'm trying to help us to understand today that, that relationships matter. We're talking about a lot of different kinds of relationships, but I'm telling you, there's a, there's a principle in the word that we're moving towards that relationships matter. They're everything according to your relationship with God. You know, last week I, I gave the analogy of talking about how a part of what makes adulting hard is submitting to authority. And, and, I, and I gave the illustration last week that, that for those that refuse to submit to authority in our culture, the authority that we all agree on as the authority, the law. For those people that just absolutely refuse to submit and live under authority, we only have one solution for them. We lock them in cages. We, we put them in prison. And as crazy as that sounds, like that's the, that's the best we can do. Like we don't know what to do with a person that refuses to submit to authority. But part of the reason that being put in a prison is such punishment is because it separates a person from significant relationships. It separates them from family and from friends. 
And they, they might have a hundred other inmates, but they don't have significant relationships. They don't have relationships that they desire. And so it's a punishment because that person is cut off from relationships. But, but take it a step farther with me. What happens if a person who's in prison still refuses to submit to authority? Then we have another, another punishment. That's even worse than being locked in a prison. And the punishment that we have for that person is called solitary confinement. In other words, the the prison sentence doesn't change. They're still locked up. They're going to be locked up for just as long. The only difference is now, to punish you more severely, we've determined that you will have to spend that time alone. Think, think about this. The, in 2019, I mean, aside from the death penalty, the worst thing, the worst punishment that we have for a person is to make them spend their time alone. Why? Because we all understand innately that we were created for relationships. That we understand what God said, whether you've ever read Genesis or not, that it is not good for a person to be alone. And the truth is, as bad as solitary confinement would be, there are people today who are free that choose every day willingly to isolate themselves. There are people every day that have the liberty to pursue relationships, to make connections, to to build relationships, and yet, maybe not physically, but emotionally, we push back from relationships. Emotionally, we, we see the other people and we choose to just go to the other side of the playground. And we don't engage and we don't, we don't build those relationships. We keep our distance, even in the middle of a crowd. Can I just tell you today, the Bible says a lot about your relationships. Let me give you a couple really practical scriptures. One is in Ecclesiastes. Chapter four, it says this. Look at it on the screen. Verse nine and 10. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. That's just super practical. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help them up. Proverbs 12 verse 15 says it like this. The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise Listen to advice. You ever made a stupid decision before? Ever had a bad idea? Ever ever been on the receiving end, the repercussion side of, of that bad idea and just wished somebody would have told you better? Like, I wish I would have asked somebody. I wish I would have phoned a friend. I wish I would have got somebody else's opinion on this deal. The fool, this verse says, is the one who just thinks they know what's right and they go on. But the wise person listens to advice. Proverbs says there is wisdom in the multitude of counselors. There's wisdom. There's safety. There's safety in that. There's wisdom in that and getting counsel from other people, letting people look in on your life from a different vantage point. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, verse 20. Walk with the wise and become wise. For a companion of fools suffers 
harm. Now, this verse is so important because it, it communicates to us that we're not just talking about building a social network. We're not just talking about having friends and influencing people. We're not just talking about having relationships because he says the companion of a fool suffers harm. So you can have the wrong relationships. What the word of God is teaching us is that you need to be intentional about the right relationships, that you need to surround yourself with people that that have the mind of Christ, people that are going to counsel you and lead you into the purpose and plan that God has for your life. Let me give you one more verse. I I love Proverbs 27, 6. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. What does that that even mean? Wounds from a friend can be trusted. The wounds from a friend are those words that you needed to hear that you didn't want to hear. Those things that they told you, not because you would like it or because you would like them more, but because you needed to hear it. They loved you enough. They cared about you more than they cared about what you thought of them. And so they chose, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to love you in this moment. I'm going to tell you that you're making the wrong decision. I'm going to tell you you're going about this all wrong. Here's what I see in your life. Do you have those kind of friends? He says, you know, wounds from a friend can be trusted because they love you. But an enemy just multiplies kisses. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people that have come to faith. They've come become a part of the church, and they began the discipleship process. And it is a process, but they're learning how to, to live in light of God's truth and God's love inside of them. And, and, and then what happens is that they feel friction. There's this wrestling match that goes on with our sinful nature and our spirit nature. And, and then there's tension. And, and as you walk through this process of discipleship with them, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people that have, that have given up on the process. They, they felt the friction, and they, they just recoiled. They didn't, they didn't want that. It didn't feel good. It was, it was irritating. What they didn't understand is that principle that it's, it's the irritation in the oyster that produces the pearl. And so when they felt the irritation, they pushed away from it. They resisted the friction. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people that have come and become a part of the church, and then somebody said something they didn't like, or somebody made a decision that they didn't agree with. And what happened? They just pack it up, and they left. They went somewhere else. Why? Because they felt friction. And they didn't want the friction. And they didn't want to have to deal with, you have a different opinion than me, and I'll just go somewhere else where everybody agrees with me. Let me tell you what's so wrong with that mentality. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens iron another. Do you know how iron sharpens iron? Friction. Friction. And so what we do when we resist relationship, when we refuse to just deal with the the friction and and the the, the differing opinions and the different personalities and and all of those things, and we say, you know what, I'm just going to take my ball. I'm going to go to my side of the playground. This is not really worth the sacrifice. What we do is we at the same time resist the shaping and the sharpening that God has intended for your life, for you to become the person that God wants you to be. Iron sharpens iron. And so when we come into relationship with other believers and we say, I'm in this with you. I care about you more than I care about what you think about me. And so I'm just going to love you 
whether you like it or not. We're going to be in relationship together. Even if I have to tell you the hard things, I'm going to tell them in love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. And so we begin to make a commitment to have that relationship. And all of a sudden, there's, there's a sharpening, there's a pruning, there's a perfecting in our hearts and in our lives. You know, in, in the day and age we live in, you don't have to drive five miles to find 10 different churches you could go to. And on one hand, I thank God for that. I thank God that there's, there's a church for everybody. I mean, if you don't like this church, my goodness, don't quit on Jesus. Just find a church you like. They're everywhere. That's great. But sometimes it's not great because in our culture, we have this consumeristic mentality that as soon as something happens that I don't like, we treat the, the family of God like a buffet line, right? You go, ooh, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm going to go down here and find something I like over here. Oh, that, that doesn't agree with me. I'm, I'm going to go over here. And, and, and how many of you know that relationships are like vegetables sometimes? You need them. You need them. Like them or not, you're going to be healthier if you have them. You need them. And so instead, we, we avoid the friction and, and what we produce is immaturity. Immaturity. I heard someone say years ago, immaturity is the Trojan horse of the church. It's why we're weak. It's where the devil gets an inroad. We need the friction. We need the relationships. God's plan for your life, it includes a Christian community. It includes a Christian community. And, and more than any other picture we see in the word of God for Christian community, the picture we see most is family. Have you ever noticed when you come to church, everybody calls each other brother, sister. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. How are you doing, sister? You know, now, sometimes they do that because they don't remember your name. I'm just telling the truth. <laughs> That's the truth. God bless you, brother. You don't know my name. <laughs> but do you know why we started doing that? We got it honest. Because all through the New Testament, they referred to each other as brother and sister, as family, sometimes as mother and father, but as brother and sister. Why? Because you have a different relationship with your family than you do with your friends. Now, you might like your friends more than your family. <laughs> don't tell them that, but you know. That might be the case, but the fact is you're committed to your family. That's why some of you, you're going to get together with people in a few weeks at Thanksgiving. <laughs> you don't even like those people. <laughs> you're going to get together with them, and you're going to share a meal, and why? You love them in spite of the fact that you know all the stuff they've done wrong, you know, and, and they're, they're, they're trying hard this year, but you, you know the whole story. <laughs> Turning over a new leaf. I know you. <laughs> You did the same thing in 2009, but you love them, and that's why the Bible communicates this picture of family when it talks about the church, because we love each other. We're for each other. We're not just going to say, oh, I'm pick up and go somewhere else. No, we're, we're committed to one another as the family of God, and, and if there's a, any picture that the New Testament portrays for us besides family... It's one that's even more amazing. It's that we are the body of Christ. I mean, listen, as close as you may be to your family, you are not closer to them than your arm is to your shoulder. You're connected. 
The parts of your body literally cannot live without one another. They have to stay connected. And so it's amazing when, when God speaking through the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ. Each one of you are a part of it. You're the body of Christ. How in the world would anybody get saved and, and believe in, in the gospel and, and call themselves a Christian and not be convinced that we desperately need one another as the body of Christ? When I hear people say, no, I love Jesus, I'm just not really a churchgoer, that makes no sense to me. I mean, honestly, I, I, have, I, have, no, I have no place that I, can, that I can understand a person that says, I love Jesus, I just, I just don't really, you know, I'm not into the, the Christian scene. That's like saying, like, I want to date your head, but your body can stay home. <laughs> You're the body of Christ. As I was studying for this series, looking at a lot of information and stats about young adults in particular, I found that, and, and we know this practically, the young adults today are, are more connected than any other generation ever in history. We know that just because of technology. I mean, we are so connected. You could be getting an update right now about something that's happening on the other side of the world on your phone. But what I also found that was fascinating is that more than any other generation, this young adult generation is also among the loneliest, most connected and most lonely. Uh, Duke University and the University of Arizona did some studies, and I want to show you some of the stats that they produced. Between 1985 and 2004, the number of people saying that there was no one with whom they discussed important matters nearly tripled. Just in that time span, the number of people that said, I don't have anybody I can talk to about the big stuff, that number tripled. 24.6% of Americans reported that they had no confidant, even counting their close family friends. No, no one, close family members, 24%. Another 19.6% said they had just one confidant. And more than half, 53.4% of Americans said they did not have any confidants outside of their family. M multiple studies show the same thing, that the loneliest people in society are young adults. There was a study that I read that was done in Australia that said People aged 24 to 34 were by far the most likely to be lonely. A 10-year ten, ten window, 24 to 34, most likely to be lonely, with 30% of them saying they, quote, frequently felt lonely. Now, here's what blew my mind about that study. By comparison of the 24 to 34-year-olds, in the 35 to 39-year-old range, only 6% said they often felt lonely. I read that and I thought, what changed? I mean, it's like five years difference. What changed? Now, I, I'm not a psychologist, but let me just give you my opinion on this because I, I'm in that 34, five to 39-year-old range as of a few days ago anyway. They just kicked me out. I, I don't embrace it yet, but I'm close. And, and I can remember being in that age range 
Not the 30% that say I often feel lonely, but the 6% that say every once in a while I feel lonely. And I can remember, I was 20 years old before I got my first cell phone. I was 20 years old when I got a cell phone. And I think text messaging was like 10 cents a text or something, so I wasn't texting anybody. And plus, when you wanted to text somebody, you didn't have a full keyboard. If you wanted to get to the S, you had to hit seven four times. And then if you went too fast and you passed it back to the seven, you're like, oh, you got to keep going. I didn't text for several years, but I can remember through all, all my 16 plus years of youth ministry, I can remember when students forgot how to talk. I remember pulling up to the house outside of some of our students, these two brothers that came to our life group, and, and I pulled up outside their house to pick them up like I always did. And, uh, and so I, I called their cell phone just to let them know I'm here. And, and, and I can see the kitchen lights on, you know, they're in there. So I call the cell phone and it goes straight to voicemail. And I'm like, so I'm about to leave a message. And then the phone beeps. I got a message. It says, what's up? Question mark. I'm like, what's up? Answer your phone. What do you mean? What's up? So I'm out. S side. Send. And then they knock on the window. They're here. Hey, what's up? I'm like, oh, come on. You know, but and all of a sudden it was like, we just stopped communicating and we started texting everything. And, and what's happened is we've looked over the last several years. Is we've exchanged meaningful, real relationships for virtual interaction. You know, the average Facebook user today has 338 friends. I would say probably most young people have a lot more than that, but 338 friends on social media that they connect with. But let's be honest. I mean, how many of those people do you actually talk to about the real issues of life? How many of those people do you connect with on, on some kind of a regular basis to really spend time with and build a relationship with? I'm going to tell you today, there's a huge difference between knowing people and being known. And Jesus was never really consumed with the idea of, of everybody knowing him. Now, now, mind you, everywhere he went, there was a crowd. Jesus had lots of followers. He had lots of fans. He had lots of likes for everything that he did. But he was never driven by those relationships in the crowd. What Jesus was focused on was building significant, deep, and lasting relationships. He put all of his marbles in 12 men's basket. He just said, I'm going I'm to build relationship with these men, and then I'm going to leave, and I'm going to trust them to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so when you look in, in the Gospel of John, in the first chapter, you see the moment where some of these men started coming to Jesus. And, and, and John the Baptist had been baptizing uh, believers, and he had some disciples of his own. But after he baptized Jesus, one day Jesus comes walking up, and John points him out and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And so two of his disciples who saw him point to Jesus and say, that's the Lamb of God. They picked up and they left John and they went to Jesus. Now, now I want you to see the conversation. It's in John chapter 1, 
Verse 38, these, these two guys are now following Jesus. I love this. It says, turning around, Jesus saw them following, and he asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? I love that question. I love that question. Where are you staying? Like, we, we want to we get to know you. Not what do you do, or what do you think about the weather, or what do you think about that game? Like, they wanted to know, like, where are you staying? And I love even more Jesus' answer. Look at it in verse 39. He said, come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. I'm telling you, there's something that happens on a deeper level when you find out where somebody's staying. You know, it's one thing to come to church on the weekend and to shake somebody's hand in the foyer and to, to worship with them, to, to have a moment of interaction coming and going, or, or maybe even to see people uh, in the cubicle next to yours in the office, and, and you've got some kind of a relationship, but it goes to another level when you say, hey, why don't you come to my house? Why don't you, why don't you come see where I stay? Why don't, why don't we have dinner this week? Or we'll get together at your house. Let's Let's have a cookout. Let's get together. All of a sudden, there, there's another level of relationship, and that's what Jesus wanted. He didn't just say, follow me. He said, no, why don't you come see where I'm staying? Why don't you get to know me? I want to be with you. In fact, in, in Mark's gospel, chapter one, this is exactly what Jesus said. It says in Mark three, verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him. And then he might send them out to preach. That was his goal. He, he said, I, I put, why, did, why did he pick 12? Because he couldn't be with everybody. He couldn't be with 338 friends. No, he had to pick some people to say, you know what? I'm, I'm glad you folks are here. I'm glad you, you read my updates. I'm glad that you like to know what's going on and where I'm going to be ministering. And, and you like to show up at the big events. But I'm picking some people to be with me. That was his life group. That was the people that he said, you know, we're going to journey together. We're going to do life together. We're going to get to know one another. You're going to come and see where I stay and why. We're going to build relationship together because relationships are everything. Um, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Chris and I, we went out to dinner uh, with our wives together, and we went to El Serrano's. If you've never eaten at El Serrano's, by the way, shameless plug. I love El Serrano's. They were doing this deal they were offering a 20% discount off of your bill if nobody at the table got their phones out. I was like, what? Free money? Like, that? I mean, for real. I mean, if you tell me I can get a 20% discount if I don't blink, I won't blink. Like, I'll just be like. So, but I mean, hey, all you have to do is keep your phone in your pocket. Don't pull your phones out. And so we were like, yeah, we're doing that, 20% off the meal. But what surprised me was actually kind of hard. I mean, there were several times where we were just talking and we're telling stories, and then like we'd remember, oh, I got to show you this picture. No, I don't. I, I'll, I'll show you later. We're like, don't get your phone out. You know, you hear somebody, somebody's phone vibrate. Don't answer that. But it was actually hard. You know why? Because when, when you get that little ping, or that little vibration that goes off, well, it's like something triggers in your mind. Like you, you have to know who who's noticing me. Who 
Who's acknowledging me in this moment? Who's, who's liking what I posted? Who's commenting on what I said? Who's trying to get a hold of me right now? Who's more important to me than you two that I'm having dinner with? I want to know. Like, right? That's the way we act in response to social media. There's actually studies that have shown the effects of social media hits, those notifications, those, those likes, those comments, that, that when we get those hits, we actually get a, a release of dopamine in our system. It's the same chemical response you get when you smoke or when you drink or when you gamble. So what science is telling us is that we can be addicted to that. And so we have an entire generation of people that, that are addicted to that, that fix of like, I just need, to, I need that. I need that. You know, Mark Twain said years ago, he said, I can live for two months on a good compliment. And that, that quote has, has stood the test of time because it communicates how powerful words are. That we need words of affirmation. But that quote also dates Mark Twain. Because I'm telling you, you can't live on a compliment for two months in 2018. It doesn't last you two days. Or two hours. Sometimes two minutes. Someone's like, oh, that's great. Like, awesome. Swipe. Keep going. <laughs> right? You're like, oh, I got 55 likes. And most of us, you don't even look to see who liked it. You just like that you got 50 of them. You're like, I don't even care who liked it. I just needed to feel loved for the moment. Swipe on. And what we have is a culture that is, it's, it's a starvation for affirmation. But, but it's a false, it's a false security. Because while we're getting all of, all of the likes and all the nudges and all the notifications in a digital world, we, we've lost the skills to build lasting and significant relationships. We've lost the desire, perhaps, for building, affirming relationships. And, and, and my, my message today is not, hey, let's change society. My message is let's get back to the word of God because we have a scriptural mandate that we have to fight for Christian community. And I'm going to tell you why it matters so much, why life is all about relationships in these closing moments. I just want to share a couple more verses with you. It was on the night of Jesus' arrest and betrayal, John chapter 13. He's about to go to the cross. And we had communion last Sunday and we celebrated Passover, uh, the, the Passover feast, but, but we didn't celebrate what they used to celebrate. Jesus said on that night, as they were passing out the bread and passing around the cup, he said, a new covenant I give to you. In other words, this no longer symbolizes the, the Passover of the death angel and your escape out of bondage in Egypt. All that was, that was part of the backstory of Israel. Certainly not your backstory unless you're Jewish, but Jesus said, this now has new meaning. There's a new covenant I'm giving to you. This is my body and my blood given for you. And, and in the old covenant, they had like over 600 commands that they had to follow, not just 10 commandments. They had a whole bunch of commandments and they spent their life trying to live up to these laws. And so Jesus, on this night, before he goes to the cross, when he says, I have a new covenant that I'm giving you, he also said this, I have a new commandment. There's a, there's a, new, there's a new mode of operation for us now. Look at it with me in John 13, verse 34. Jesus says to them on that night, a new command I give you. Love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That was huge. Jesus said, this, this is new. This is a, a new priority, a new commandment for you. I mean, think of it. We love, we love to quote the, the golden rule, right? From the Sermon on the Mount. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Jesus, he, I mean, he took it to another level on this night. He said, that was the golden rule. Let me show you the platinum rule. He said, love one another as I have loved you. So don't, don't treat people the way you want them to treat you. Treat people the way that I treated you, which by the way, in a few hours, guys, I'm going to give my life for you. In just a few hours, Jesus would go and lay his life down as the sacrifice for their sins and for our sins. And Jesus says, here it is. Here's the platinum rule. Love one another the way I love you. And John was sitting right there. In fact, he said in his own gospel that he had actually leaned back against Jesus. And he heard him say that. And he understood the significance of those words even more after the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. And so years later, he writes his letter, 1 John. And he says these words. He's explaining the significance of what Jesus said. This is, this is how you live out the new commandment in the new covenant. This is what Christian community is supposed to look like. He writes, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. That's huge. I mean, I don't think you can say it any stronger than that. He says, look, if, if you don't love the body of Christ, if you don't love one another, don't even talk to me about your relationship with Jesus. You're kidding yourself. If you can't love people that you can see, if you can't figure out how to, to grow and build a relationship with them, don't try to tell me you're building a relationship with God in heaven. That's what John's saying to him. And Jesus, I mean, he, he had strong words about this himself. In Matthew during his Sermon on the Mount, when he was beginning to lay out the, the, a picture of what the kingdom of God was going to look like, he said this in Matthew 5. He said, therefore, if you're, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, come and offer your gift. You know what he was saying in that moment? He was saying your relationship with other people is more important than any offering that you could give, any act of service that you could bring, any song that you could sing, anything that you could do to honor me, to bring me your gift is less important than your relationship with one another. And so if, if there's something wrong, just leave your gift right there. Just stop the service. And, and fix what's wrong. Go to your brother, go to your sister and reconcile and get it right. Why? Because then, then God is going to honor the heart of your worship. Why? Because your relationship with one another, our relationship with each other is a testament. It's a, it's a verification. It points to the reality of our relationship with our heavenly father. Do we actually believe that? I mean, do we, do we live that way as the church? Do we really believe that, that Jesus 
had a new commandment, a better commandment for a better covenant for us, that we would love one another the way that he loved us. The the very next verse there in John 13, Jesus then said this. He said, by this, the, the fact that you love one another the way I've loved you, he said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus made love a verb. If you love one another, and and he gave it in in the imperative sense, this is a command, love one another. He wasn't saying, I want you to feel something for one another. He was saying, I want you to do something, do something for one another. So what are we going to do with this command? Because I I know the pushback, I'm busy. Like, I mean, I I come to church, I I worship God here, but to to start pursuing other relationships, to start trying to, to build community, I'm busy. Or maybe the pushback is, you know, building adult relationships, it isn't like meeting kids on the playground. I mean, it's complicated. Like, people, are, people have their own stuff, and it's just, it's not worth it. But we're commanded. We're commanded. People say, oh, yeah, but I'm an introvert. I'm not, I'm not good at meeting people. But we're commanded to build relationships because these relationships communicate to a lost world. When the church... When we, when we love one another, when we love one another, we deal with all of our idiosyncrasies and personalities and, and differing opinions on social issues and political issues and, and all the stuff that the world gets up in arms about. And yet we continually come back together intentionally in relationship and we cultivate a Christ-honoring community together. People go, that's different. That's di- now that, you don't see that. You don't see that. That's different. What is that? That's the church. That's the new command. That's loving one another as I have loved you. So I want to pray for us today as the church. And first, I want to pray for anyone that might be here today and you just feel, you feel alone. You feel lonely. Again, not, not talking about your relationship status. You just feel like, you know, maybe emotionally or spiritually, maybe even physically. You just feel like there's, there's nobody really, nobody in my sphere, nobody in my space, nobody that I feel like I'm doing life with. I want to pray for you. I want to give you a word of encouragement. The Bible says this. The Bible says that God sets the lonely in families. You're here for a reason. You are here for, even if, even if you're only here today, maybe you're out of town, you're here for a reason. There's a word that God wants to speak to your life. And there's a family that God wants you to be a part of. It's his family. It's his family. And if you're not saved today, I want to invite you into that family. I want to invite you to just take a moment right here at the conclusion of this service and just ask, ask God to forgive you of your sins. To just right where you're at, to just pray a prayer and say, God, I... I need, I need you to save me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to give me a new start. And God, I, I want to be a part of your family. If you need to pray that prayer today, pray it now. God is listening to you. You don't have to check a box. You don't have to sign up for a church. Just talk to God. He's listening to you and he loves you. He's a good father. He longs to embrace you today. Maybe you're here and just feel like 
you're alone. Father, I pray today for that one or for that many. God, I thank you that you you are the head of the body according to your word. Jesus, you you are the one that makes us whole. Our joy is in you. Our pleasures are at your right hand. We don't want to put that on anyone or on any church or on any group or any person. God, we're looking to you right now to fill our hearts and to fill our lives with your joy and your presence, your strength. But God, we need the body, not just the head. And so Lord, I pray that in the, in the days to come, Lord, you would, you would cause us to live with our eyes lifted, that we would look around to the right and to the left, that we would understand God Like never before that our relationship is not just vertical, but in fact, if our relationship is not relational horizontally, then there's nothing authentic about our professed relationship with you. God, help us to look around. Help us to be the arms of Christ that embrace one another. Help us to be the mouthpiece of God that speaks a word of encouragement. God, teach us how important it is that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, that we spur one another on to good works, that we encourage one another as long as it is called today, that we confess our sins to one another so that we might be healed. Over and over again, God, your word speaks to us about how critical these relationships are. But God, give us the courage today and this week to cross our little playground and to invest ourselves in somebody else's life to build Christian community that will guard us and keep us and protect us and give us wise counsel thank you God for the church thank you that you invite us all into this beautiful family we love you Jesus we love your family it's in your name we pray